If you have a Bible, would you turn with me to Genesis chapter 11? If you don't have a Bible with you and are using the Red Pew Bibles, it's on um, page 5. We've been working our way through the first part of the book of Genesis, and today is actually the last sermon in this series of the first part of Genesis, and we'll come back to Genesis later, Um, but so far we've been asking the question, what does this old book, the first book, teach us about the foundations of our faith? And from the beginning, we've learned about God's good creation and the purpose that he has created us to have in this world. We've read about how he made us in his image to glorify him and um, to, to fill the world with his glory. We've learned about how we do that in our relationships and how we do that in our work and how we do that in our worship. We've also seen what's wrong with the world and what God has promised to do about that issue. Uh, This morning, we come to the end of this first part of the book of Genesis, and as we read this passage, we're going to um, see three things. And so if you want to take notes or follow along in your head, this is where we're headed. We're going to see the trajectory of man, a movement from God, and a better way forward. We're going to see the trajectory of man, a movement from God, and a better way forward. Let's read Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they all have one language. This is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all of the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the timelessness of this truth and what it says about who we are and what it reveals about your character towards us. We pray now in your spirit, would you illumine our eyes and open our hearts to receive your word and your conviction, Lord, that we may be drawn to your grace in your Son. In his name we pray, amen. In order to understand what is happening in this passage, uh, we have to remember where we've come from. This isn't just a story about a great tower. Uh, It's a story about the trajectory of man and where man is headed. 
If you remember, we started this whole uh, series in creation, when God uh, created all mankind and all of creation and made man in his own image and gave him this command, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And behind that command was this blessing, you carry my image and my glory. Now take that image, take that glory, and spread out. Go to the farthest reaches of the world and declare my glory. This is what the whole beginning of the Bible is all about. From chapters 1 through 11, we hear this grand plan that God would fill the earth with his image through us, that we would take his glory and take it to the ends of the earth. But when we get to chapter 11, what do we see happening? Has man gone to the ends of the world? No. Instead, we see that they have gathered in together, and they're building one city, one tower, with one language and one speech. This is the opposite of what God has commissioned his people to do. Instead of going to the world, they have come together. Instead of moving out, they have moved in. This is the first trajectory of man. God calls his people to go out into the world and to declare his glory. And yet we see the trajectory of man is to move in, to come together, to gather under one name and say, we're going to oppose this mission. This is what God always does. He has always called his people to go out. In years from now in this story, Israel as a nation is going to be planted in the promised land. And this land was strategic because every other nation of the world would pass by this land. If they were in Europe and they wanted to get to Africa, they had to go by this land. If they were in Africa and they wanted to get to Asia, they had to go through this land. God called his people to go to the world by placing them in the promised land. When Jesus comes on the scene and he starts gathering disciples together, the last teaching that he gives to his disciples is what? Go into the world and make disciples of all nations. God's always calling his people to go into the world. But the trajectory of man is to turn inward and come together. That is what we always do. That is the trajectory of man. We flock to our own kinds. Instead of moving towards people uh, who will most certainly be uneasy or uncomfortable to talk to or connect with, we turn inward and find people who make us comfortable. Instead of having an open posture, we close the door and say, I'm comfortable with who we have. That, that's the trajectory of man. We isolate ourselves with people that we're comfortable with. I want to remind ourselves that when we gather as a church, whether that is Sunday morning or in our community groups or, or, or whatever we're doing as a church, the church always exists for three purposes. One is to worship God, to come together and give him glory. 
The second reason why we ever come together is so that we, as disciples, can be encouraged and challenged and strengthened and grow in our faith. But always, there is a third reason. We gather together so that we can go into the world and welcome our neighbors. These aren't mutually exclusive, and it's good for us to sort of look at them individually, but we have to remember that. That the, the purpose of gathering together as a church is never to end at just being together. God is always calling his people to go out. So we see the trajectory of man is to go in. But that's not all we see. We see also the trajectory of the man. Man is not just to go in, but to go up, to climb up. We see this in verse 4. They say to one another, let us build a tower with its top in the heavens. For the ancient people, all they knew of was the earth and the heavens. And they all knew stories that when God wanted to talk or act, it came from above. And so in their mind, they understood that if we climbed up to the sky, if we could go to the heavens, then we would be in the place where God is. And that's what they want to do. They want to go to where God is so that they can have the power like God, so that they can have the, the honor like God, that they can have the glory like God. They're saying the quiet part out loud when they say, let us make a name for ourselves. That's their desire. They want to be great. They want to do something and make a, a legacy for themselves. They are saying, we want the glory and honor and fame and praise that only belongs to God. They want to do something. They want to achieve something great. This is the trajectory of man. We not only come together, but we want to climb up. We want fame and glory. We, we want to be something. We want to be known for something. We want to be remembered. We want to get our hands dirty and make something that'll last. Is that the trajectory of your life? Like when you think about why you go to your workplace, is it to build yourself up? When you think about why you're with the person that you're with, is it so that they can serve you? Is that the trajectory of your lives, that you want to be great in the eyes of others? This is the trajectory of man. We might say that the trajectory of man is, is inward on oneself. Martin Luther, what a, what a great day to quote Martin Luther. He talked about this. He said that man, the nature of man is bent inward towards Ourselves. He says, our nature, by the corruption of our first sin, is so deeply curved in on itself that not only does it bend God's gifts towards ourselves and enjoys them for ourselves, but it also fails to realize how wickedly and curvedly and viciously we seek all things, even God, for our own sake. That we see everything in our lives as a means to our own end, even God. That is the trajectory of man. Everything in my life 
is to serve me. We might say that the, the, the motto of man today is I am my own. And no one else can tell me who I'm supposed to be. No one else can tell me what I'm supposed to do. I am my own. As a brief aside, I talked a few weeks ago about how we have to have a robust counter formation in our discipleship, that we learn things to counteract what the world is teaching us. In September, our confession of faith, the Heidelberg Catechism question number one, begins like this. I am not my own, but belong body and soul to Jesus Christ. The world tells us you are your own. But the gospel says no. We belong to Jesus. Is that the trajectory of your life? When you wake up tomorrow, Monday morning, and get yourself ready for the day, when you're thinking about your first meeting at work or what you're going to plan to do with your kids, who are you living for? The trajectory of man apart from an intervention from God is bent in on itself. We want to make a name for ourselves. We want the glory. And in response to this self-centeredness, we see God move. What does he do? Look at verse 5. In verse 5, we read that God comes down to see the city and the tower. I I love the way that Moses tells us this story. I I think that there's such great irony in the way that God reveals what he did, that he got up from his throne, peered down from the heavens, and had to go down to see the city. He has to climb down out of heaven to see what they created. One of my dreams in life is to visit Dubai and to uh, ride the elevator up all 148 floors, 100, or sorry, 1,820 feet into the air and step out into the observation deck of the Burj Khalifa Tower, the world's tallest building. One of my dreams is to stand up there and just survey everything. And and from that height, even the next tallest skyscraper looks like a toy. And and people look smaller than ants. Maybe you have gone to an observation deck or flown in an airplane and look out and you see cars driving like a kid with Hot Wheels. I mean, it's this immense feeling of power. You know, think about a kid running out into the backyard with a magnifying glass and plopping down into the grass. They're examining the blades of grass and the dirt and the bugs. The the distance between this micro world and the kid is so great, but how much greater is the distance between God and his majesty, the creator of the universe who peers down from the heavens and sees this little city and a tiny tower? He says, look at what the children of man have made. 
And yet, when he comes down, he, he doesn't mock us. He doesn't make fun of us for trying to do something great. No, he actually responds with mercy. He responds with grace towards us. He says in verse 6, Behold, they are one people and they all have one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do now will be impossible for them. Let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand. He's trying to put a stop to what we are doing. He, he knows that if he just knocks over the tower, that we're bent inward on ourselves and we're just going to build another tower. He, he knows that if he just knocks down our city, that we're going to look in on ourselves and try to make a name for ourselves again. And so instead, out of his grace and mercy, he prevents us from doing that again by confusing our language. This is an act of mercy because God knows that humans were not made to have this kind of glory. Humans were not made to possess the glory that is God's. God knows that glory-seeking will ultimately destroy us. It'll be this burden that we carry that will crumble us. It'll crush us under its weight. If we keep seeking this glory, it'll ruin us. And so God puts a stop to the project. He protects us from ourselves. What a gift of mercy. I need to stop here and sit in this idea for a minute. Because I don't think that this is generally how we think about God. That, that he would do something like that, that doesn't seem to be merciful, and yet is for our good. I, I worry that sometimes we've exchanged the God of the Bible, the God of Genesis, into this glorified personal assistant, that we just ask him to do things for us. We come up with this idea that if I had, I don't know, whatever it is, if I had this thing, if I had this job, if I had this relationship, if I had this, this material good, if I had this new thing or this flashy thing or this better thing, then my life would be better. God, can you give me this? Can you work in my life in such a way to provide this for me? I think that this will be good for me. Do we have room in our understanding of who God is? Do we have room in our understanding of who God is for the idea that maybe God won't give us what we want, who will ruin our plans the way that we think it should go, who will thwart our ambition because he knows that in the end, getting what we want will ruin us. Do we have room in our understanding of God's grace and mercy that he might not give us what we want, that he might not answer our prayer, and ultimately it's for our good? When we don't get those things, when we don't get the promotion, when we don't get the right diagnosis, when we don't get everything that our hearts are set on getting, what do we typically do? We get mad. We get angry. We, 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 we ask God, why? Like, haven't I done enough for you? Haven't I done everything you've asked me for? Why, why can't you just do this? We question his goodness and his care and his love. 
The other day, I took my kids to the Lego store at Beachwood Mall. It was a really fun time. Uh, we brought a list, a, a paper and a pen, and I had them write down or tell me to write down uh, all the Lego sets that they wanted for Christmas. And that was a terrible idea. Because <laughs> now they have in their mind this idea that, that I or Sarah and I are going to give them everything that they asked for. And I'm a little worried that come Christmas Day, they're not going to open up everything they asked for. And I'm worried what they're going to think about me. I'm worried that they're going to question whether I love them the way that they thought I loved them. I think we do this with God. We turn him into someone who will just answer everything we want, who will give us whatever our heart's desire is. Sometimes, though, in his mercy, he doesn't give us it. He changes the plans. He does something that we might think as wrong but it is for our good, and it's for his glory. Is there room in your understanding of God like that? We've seen the trajectory of man, how we're bent inward on ourselves. And we've seen this movement of God coming down out of heaven to save us from ourselves. Now we have to ask, is there a better way forward for us? Like, as a church today, is there a better way forward that we aren't seeking our own fame, that we're not seeking to make a name out of Story Church? Or as individuals, like when you go to your, your house, how do we create our homes in such a way that God's glory is declared in our homes and not our own fame? Or when we go to work, how do we interact with colleagues and many times in competition with them? How do we seek God's glory and our humility in the workplace? These are great questions to ask, and I, this passage doesn't explicitly give us the answer, but we have to ask, how do we move forward in this world, disciples of Jesus, in which we are not living for ourselves, but living for God's glory? Those are the questions that we have to ask. Our hearts are hardwired because of the fall to move inward and to climb up. I'll just be honest. When we started Story Church, I had this grand vision that we would make a name for ourselves. I, I, I thought that given the right, um, the, the great, right foundation, the right vision, the right people, the right location, that, that it would just be this perfect storm that God would just send down his grace and that we would do something great. And I'll be honest, I wanted to do that for my own sake. It's a small business. And like most small businesses, I found myself comparing myself to others, you know, charting our numbers versus other people's numbers. Where in your own life are you seeking to make a name for yourself, comparing yourself to others? Is it in your bank account? Is it in the success of your children? Is it in your relationships? 
How do we move forward in this life with everything that God has given us so that his name would be great, his glory would be known? That's the big question. Jesus and his teachings, he teaches us that that's, that's what we're supposed to do. As citizens of his kingdom, he says that in the kingdom of God, the first will be last. The last will be first. He says if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you, you have to go down and become a servant of all. He, he says the kingdom of God is like this great feast that the king of the kingdom is inviting people to. And who do we see is invited to the feast? We see the rich and the poor, the lame and the crippled, the young and the old. Everyone from the farthest cities and highways come to the feast. Jesus says, if you want to be part of the kingdom of God, the way of the kingdom is not in, it's out. If you want to be part of the kingdom, it's not climbing up, it is going down and being a servant. That's the way forward for us as a church. To become a servant of our neighbors. To love them. To care for them. To have eyes to see, how can I bless them? And it's to go out. To be a community in which we are readily postured to welcome our neighbors. Whether that's Sunday morning or in our community groups on Tuesday and Thursday, are we ready to welcome our neighbors? Are we ready to, to welcome those who might be more difficult to get along with? Or are we actively pursuing relationships with our neighbors with the intention of inviting them to experience God's grace and mercy? That is what it means to go out. We exist as a church to invite people into a new story shaped by Jesus. That story is shaped by downward movements and outward movements. But we must not only look to Jesus as an example of who we're supposed to be. We also find in Jesus the way in which we're able to do those things. Because when we look to Jesus, look, Jesus comes down out of heaven. He sees our efforts at trying to make a name for ourselves. And like our story, he responds with mercy. This is what Paul in Philippians 2 says. He calls Christians to look to Jesus and to have the same mind that he has when he says this, Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be held onto. Rather, he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. While we were glory seeking, Christ gave up his glory. He stepped down out of heaven. He came to us, the other. He took on the role of a servant. He went out, he moved down to save us from moving in and climbing up. 
He died so that we might live in him. Our glory seeking is too much for us to carry. We will be crushed under the weight of seeking to make a name for ourselves. But on the cross, Jesus was crushed under the weight of our glory seeking. Under the weight of our sin, his body was crushed. He took upon himself our sin so that we would no longer have to carry the burden of pursuing a name. This is the chief example of going down and moving out. He died for you. And if you have faith in him, if you trust in him, then the Father delights in you. His favor is on you. We don't have to search for glory and purpose and a name anymore because we have the favor of the Lord upon us. We can take off that burden. So where do we go from here? The story of Tower of Babel ends like this. God disperses them across the world. He confuses their language, and he gives them a name. He calls them Babel, which means confusion. They desired a great name for themselves, and yet they got one they were ashamed of. Their legacy was their hubris. Their reputation was their pride. They will forever be known for their wickedness. We know this story so well. But it, it begs the question, what kind of name do we want? What, what kind of legacy do we want to have individually and as a church? What reputation should we be pursuing? How do we want to be remembered in the eyes of our neighbors? Before the throne of God, what name do we want to have? After Paul tells us about God coming down in Jesus, he tells us that God raised him from the dead and has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the name that we want. We want to make Jesus known. We want to be known by the name of Jesus. We want his glory to be our reputation so that when people think about Story Church, when they think about you and your family, they don't think about how, you know, how wonderful you are or how big your family is or how big your church is. They don't, we don't want them to think, oh, yeah, they do great things for the community. Their events are fun. When people look at us, what we want them to see is Jesus. We want his name to be our glory. We want to make him famous in our lives. How do we start? You have to ask, who are you living for? What are you living for? Is your life bent inward on yourself? Are you trying to make a name for yourself? Ask the Lord to show you where in your life you say, I am my own. 
But then you have to move on. You have to move from an inward life to an outward life. You have to ask, are are you so focused on the people that you already belong to in your circle? You have to ask, am I giving the attention that the Lord wants me to give onto people outside of my community? Am I neglecting God's call on my life and on our church to posture ourselves towards the people who are not yet part of this church? And finally, we have to ask the Lord to make his name great in our lives, to to make his glory great in our minds and in our hearts. We need to ask the Spirit to impress his name into our life. We were created in the image of God and commissioned to fill the earth with his glory, not our own. We need to retrieve that mission. We need to know that in Christ, we have been recreated now in the image of Christ. We have been commissioned now to fill the earth with the image of Christ. Let us strive to reflect his name and his fame and his glory wherever we go. Let's pray.